Welcome to the Full Potential Podcast. I am your host, Nick Wagner Sr. And every week, I interview guests that share career stories, ideas, and experiences to empower and inspire people to reach their full potential. If you enjoy the episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify. Thanks for listening. And uh, today, uh, and I'm wearing a robot shirt in honor of him because I, I knew he would like this. Um, we didn't both plan to wear blue. I don't know how that happened, but um, I, we are tonight we are sitting down with Dr. Steve Mastriani. And uh, Steve, first I wanna say thank you for making time and uh, welcome to the show. Thanks. So so let's, um, let's, let's start, Steve, with one of my favorite questions. And when you meet someone, for the first time and they ask you you know who is steve right who are you and, and, and what do you do what do you, what do you typically say to that how, how do you answer that question um i like to say that I'm, I'm an innovator and um a creator and a thinker and and a source of inspiration for others i'm always always have something churning going on in my mind and i love um, you know, um, you know, sharing that with other folks and helping them, inspiring them to create new and, and uh, really novel kinds of things. Uh, so many products I see um, out there are sort of iterative uh, actions on, on an existing product. And what I like to do is look ahead three or five years and, and look at those things that are going to really be impactful in the future that folks haven't thought of yet. And that's something I do all the time. Every time I drive down the street, every time I'm in the car, if I'm shopping or anything like that, I'm always thinking about the things I'm doing and how they could be made better or or enable them to be uh, you know utilized by others more easily. Does that uh, does that drive your family crazy, or are they just used to it at this point? Oh, they're used to it. They just, <laughs> ignore, they just ignore me. So, <laughs> so I think I think I think the interesting Steve thing about you, Steve, is. You've had, uh, as you've had, uh, and we'll talk about this, right? You've been an entrepreneur early in your career, and you've worked for some Fortune 50 companies as well. So I think I think you've really been on both both sides of the the, the business world as far as you know, working for yourself, being an entrepreneur, and then working for a large company. And but I think one thing that you've done throughout your career, no matter where you worked, was you innovated and, and you focused on innovation and inspiring people. So I, we'll we'll get into all that. Um, but let's start. Cause I always like to go back in time and start at the beginning. Right. Because I don't, I feel that a lot of people are who they are because of how they were brought up and, and what they did when they were a kid. So sure. when you were little Steve Mastriani, right, your elementary school, Steve Mastriani, what were your grand plans for your job? Like what did you, did you, did you knew you know you wanted to go to college? What did you know what you wanted to do when you grew up? What, what were your thoughts when you were a little kid? So absolutely not. Um, when I was three, I think I was three, or eight, I think I was three or four. Um, I went down, this was going to show my age now, but I went down to the, um, to the television set in my uh, living room. And that was the time we had only one television set. Right. And I took all the parts out of it. I took all the tubes out of it, yes, tubes, and, and laid them all out on the floor. And the next day when my father got up and my mother got up and saw the TV, they had a, you know, a fit because this thing couldn't work anymore. So that's what I was very early on. Everything I wanted to understand how it worked, how it yeah. worked together. So that's what I think sort of started me on this. I don't know if that was the, the kick in the pants. My father wasn't too happy with it. I actually put it all back together and made it work. Uh, by the time I was five, I was doing that uh, pretty regularly. To um, everything. Yeah, to everything. I took apart. Yeah, to everything. I took apart mm. toasters, refrigerators. I took apart everything I could. I wanted to see how you know it would be done, how it, what made it click, what made it work, and how I could fix it. Um, I call it the the Howard Wallowitz kind of uh, persona. Where I love I love that story. You know, <laughs> where I'm the engineer who always wants to to take it apart. Now, did you have did you have parents that were engineers as well and that were technical like that? Is that no. is that you think where you no? Absolutely not. My mother worked in an office and my father worked in a factory, um, 
and and they weren't the slightest technically inclined folks at all. They could barely operate a toaster or a, a coffee pot. So, so you didn't, so you didn't get this this curiosity from them. Um, you ended up going to you ended up going to school for for computer science, right? At, at what point? Because there's a there's a that's a big leap from taking apart toasters and televisions yeah. to getting into computer science. So, what was the that turning point in your childhood or your 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 you know your younger schooling years that turned you on to computer science and computers? I, I think. Um... In high school, um, I wasn't very good academically, and I barely got by high school. But a couple of the classes I took in high school, uh, one of them was radio electronics, and you know where we sat down, and we built circuits, and, and we built circuits and, and right. you know, radio parts and stuff. That really fascinated me. I wanted to know how the things that you could not see, see, you know, electrons. Uh, actually made things happen. Uh, that probably put a spark in me to uh, follow that that sort of journey. Uh, so following high school, you know, I, I entered school to, for electrical engineering and wanted to, you know, learn more about actually how those things worked and maybe embark a career on a, you know, upon a career in electrical engineering. So I just find this fascinating because... Uh, you didn't do well in high school. No. But you ended up getting a PhD. Yeah, that's a, a story in itself, which, you know, is, is pretty boring, but... Um, no, I, 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 I guess what, what, what I find interesting about that, right, is a lot of, you know, a lot of, you know, I think when you, when most people think of someone that goes to get their PhD, right, they think of someone who loves learning, right? But you didn't love learning in high school. So what what changed yeah. when you went to college that all of a sudden you you liked you obviously liked school enough to get an undergrad, a master's, and a PhD. Right. So what changed? So I think what happened was I started getting involved jobs with other folks who were a hell of a lot smarter than me. Most people are, and that that's that's something that always bothered me. I always wanted to know you know, the, the insides of everything that, you know, the folks around me were working on. And I didn't want to feel sort of like the one on the outside. So I started reading more, uh, attending classes. My, my journey was a little different than most of the folks we know, right? The tech DP interns and things like that, who, who, who choose a career in graphic arts or, or IT arts or, or IT or something like that. They sort of chart their path. I sort of rambled and wandered all over the place. And, and my career journey was more like um, uh, my destiny, as I think Harrison Ford said, you know, nothing controls my destiny, no super magic power. It's just a bunch of hocus pocus. That, that's me too. Uh, it's, it was just a bunch of, um, I don't know, butterfly wings, if you will, along my career path that chose me, you know, put me in that direction. Um, and following my, my interest in electrical engineering, I started in a company as a technician. Uh, and my first job was to repair disk drives and tape drives. Um, and what I found was that in order to do that, I had to actually write software to do it. Got it. Okay. Right. So I started so writing, right. So I started so writing. It was, it was the, it was the, the, that was when hardware met software for you. That's right. And, you know, I learned how to debug problems with an oscilloscope and, and meters and stuff like that. But the way you could really exercise it and sort of take it, uh, diagnose it was to write some software around it. So, um, I raised my hand and there was one fellow there who was at the company was, fairly knowledgeable. And I said, could you help me? Could you teach me a few things? Could you just help get me started? And uh, sort of that's sort of the beginning of that path. What, so what you just said, I think is a very impactful thing for many people to hear. You asked for help. And you knew you weren't the smartest person in the room. And you knew others could help you. Absolutely. Was that was that a some was that easy for you to do? Or was that something that you took a lot of courage to work up to ask that? I think I 
think if the mentors, the potential mentors are um, open to that, they'll let you know and it makes it easier. I think it's difficult when you're working for someone or with a group of folks who are not approachable, who can't come up and they're afraid to ask you questions. They're wasting your time and stuff. Uh, I I was the opposite. You know, I I was hungry for that knowledge and I asked everybody I could for for help, you know, uh, learning those kinds of things. So it's incredible, incredibly important to get a, a, a mentor or an advocate or a contact in any company that you work for, you've got to identify those folks or that one or the two people that, that can help, you know, you along with your career and latch on to them and, and, you know, learn what you can yeah. from them. Yeah. yeah and, and, and that's not everyone. I mean, not everyone is interested in, in doing that. Right. And, and in, in doing that, right. And, and mentoring no. people. So to your point, you got to find the right person. So it sounds like this person made a made a big impact early on in your career for you. Yeah, he did. And, um, uh, you know, shortly thereafter, he left the company and became a beekeeper. Um, and he was a software engineer before that. And that, that always sort of amazed me and sort of set in my mind um, the sort of do what you like and like what you do um, model that 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 I follow to this very day that. You've got to do what you like to do. And, um, you know, if it's not something you'd like to do, change it. Do something else. So that was, no, I think, and I think that's great advice. That was before this, this job, that was, that was your first job, right? That was before right. you started your own, your own business right. doing software development then. That's right. I okay. started my own business and, um, you know, where I saw, um, you know, where I subcontracted other folks and I, I was sort of a system house. We did special work for, you know, Microsoft, IBM, and back then Ashton Tate and other companies around. And uh, I enjoyed that very much, uh, having your own business. And, you know, you learn a lot, right? You learn all about the tax filing requirements and the legal requirements and all that. But it was a great experience. Um you know, made a lot of dough and and uh, a lot of contacts, a lot of networking. Uh, but the downside of that is, you know, vacations are not free, right? You Correct. take a vacation and uh, you don't get paid. It's really kind of as simple as that. You get sick, you don't get paid. Um, so it's got its downsides. And you did that for over six years. So what, yes. what, um, what was ultimately the decision point for you to make that career change and leave the make that career change and leave the world of entrepreneurship and and end up at IBM at Big Blue. What what was the what was that big shift? Why did you do it? Um for the money. <laughs> I mean what happened was I was doing some consulting work uh for IBM and I was doing some um uh consulting work for uh, the research division of IBM and also the division in Boca Raton who was working on OS2. And coincidentally there, I, I was contacted by a friend who said, hey, what do you think, you know, maybe you want to someday write a book. And we joked that around and we kidded around about it. And he put me in contact with a publisher uh, and um, she called me back and, you know, two weeks later, we signed a deal for me to write a book. Uh, so I started writing my, my first programming book, my first programming book on, on OS2. Unfortunately, it's dead now, but at the time it was very, very popular. Yeah. And that helped me a lot. And the, writing the book, I think, was a catapult sort of for IBM, who then said, hey, we got to have this guy on our side. We got to have him part of, you know, part of this company. Um, so they then made me an offer. Frankly, I couldn't refuse. And that, that's how I got into IBM. Now, at, at this point, so it's, it's 1993. I'm, I'm going I'm to just say the date. You, you know, it's on your right. LinkedIn. So I didn't yeah, check it out, right? Yep. Had you, had, at this point in your career, had you gotten your master's and gotten your PhD at this point? No. So you only had had your undergrad at this point. Yeah, that's right. I had a lot of other classes under my belt and towards my master's. But what happened was I happened was 
I uh, there was a, actually a, a three-year stint that I did with IBM uh, working in the Boca Raton office on OS2. I did a lot of speaking, um, a lot of uh, presentations at conferences and stuff like that. Uh, you know, followed it up with another version of the book and was doing fine until I got the job with, at IBM Research. And then I got in the company and looked around and I found myself in a company that you can't even get an interview without a PhD. I mean, they don't even talk to you unless you're a PhD or postdoc. Um, so I said, geez, you know, how long am I going to last here before they, they find out, you know, <laughs> I don't know enough. That was one motivator. And also, right. frankly, um, I was a little bit intimidated. I mean, I was talking with people who invented the scanning tunneling microscope and with Man and with Mandelbrot who invented fractals. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I was among some, some really, really, um, you know, famous folks. Yeah. And, and found myself, you know, wanting to learn and needing that to, to bring myself up to the level that I felt comfortable with, you know, with working with those folks and, uh, you know, could stand on my own. So, so you, you actually got your master's and your PhD while working at IBM. That's right. And okay. one of the good, one of the good things IBM did was they paid for that journey and they paid for my time, uh, you know, away from that. I mean, that's one of the good memories I have of IBM. There are a number of probably not so good ones, but that was one of the, the better ones. They really, uh, you know, really valued education. They, oh, absolutely. They valued education. Um, um, yeah. Then. I'm, I'm not sure about now. I think, you know, things have changed a bit in, have changed a bit in, in IBM, but it very much depends on your manager and your advocates. Again, you gotta get, you gotta get your advocates. You gotta um, make sure you get the right manager and the right manager in a large company like that makes all the difference. I ended up with the right manager. So, so, um, so you were there for 20 years. Yes, and... that's right. What, I mean, obviously you did a variety of things there, but what was yep. as I think in in the research area, right? Because IBM research is different from other parts of IBM. I mean, when, you know, That's IBM. Right. I think for for my listeners, you know, IBM was one of the original tech companies when you really think about it, right? You know, a lot of people think of of Google and Microsoft and Apple, but IBM was there before all of them. Um, what was what as a researcher at IBM? What what was your role? I mean, what was you you were working on OS two, and I should probably tell people what that is because they probably don't know. <laughs> oh, OS two was an operating system like like a like like a competitor to Windows that IBM had for personal computers. I just want to make sure I say that just so because people were probably wondering what OS two was. Yeah. Um, so, IBM Research was a was a company that would embark on many, many things. They would often change a mission statement would come out almost every year and it would kind of change the focus. Uh, uh, one year it was network centered computing. Another year might be network centric computing. Another year was autonomic computing. Um, so you got to work on a lot of different projects and many things came our way, a variety of things. Um, many things you've never seen before, the world has never seen. We had an MP3 player back in early 2000, which was, I think, better than, you know, probably the iPods, whatever that came out after that. We had a set of internet glasses in 1999. We built in 1999. We built our first uh, watch, digital watch with internet capability, a Linux-based watch in the late 90s. So a lot of these things never, you know, saw the light of day, but they turned me on to the technology and what was possible. And I think one of the things that research did for me was to teach me that, 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 that look ahead, that five to 10 year look ahead um, and not worry about what you can do now, but think about in context of what can you do 10 years from now. You know, for instance, we did mobile healthcare um, using Palm Pilots. So we were doing mobile healthcare when there was no such thing, uh, when, you know, there was no connectivity. But we said, you know what, in 10 years, right. there will be connectivity. So let's just not let that be, just not let that be an inhibitor 
and let's, you know, reach for the stars and, and do something five years out, whatever, so that by the time the need came for that technology, that would we would be well positioned to take take advantage of it. So it taught me to always look ahead, always think ahead. And uh, I was lucky enough to be in a group where I had a couple of folks who were just, I mean, just phenomenal. I mean, we would sit all our lunch times and that's all we would talk about is new ideas, new things, new, new, new projects we wanted to do, new ideas we had for new technology. And that's how we got into developing patents. I mean, I didn't even know what a patent was. I, I had no idea how to put a patent together. Uh, but in a matter of a few years, I had done my first one and we started churning them out like crazy. I mean, I, I felt like crazy. I mean, I, I found that writing patents, coming up with those ideas was was actually very easy. Um, I didn't find any any problems with it and I did very well at it. I filed over a hundred or so patents and uh, I think I've got 70 or 80 granted or something like that. I had a great time with that. Um, and that causes you to always think ahead and, right. and look ahead for what's in the future. Um, and part of the patent writing process is also checking what's out there already. So you're, you're sort of forced to go out in the rest of the industry and discover you know, what everybody else is working on. So it was fascinating. Now, fascinating. What's interesting about this is that's a lot different from what you were doing as an entrepreneur owning your own business because if you're right. consulting because if you're right. consulting for your own business, my assumption is companies were hiring you to deliver something for them. That's right. Just and, for and say, hey Steve, we need you to do this by this date. That's right. And Contract. now you're in and now you're in a world where uh, that that is it, it couldn't be any it couldn't be more different, right? That's so right. So how was that what was that shift like for you? Was that was it was it easy because you were so passionate about technology and and what you were doing, or did you find it hard at first to not have these actual hard deliverables that clients were asking for? Uh, I made that shift very easily. Did you? Um, yeah, because I, I, I'm just incredibly uh, interested in things. I have this insatiable need to learn and to to understand things. So for me, that process. Uh, came quite easily. Yes, it was a shift away from the deliverables uh, where you're owning your own company. You're kind of like a contract by hire labor, contract by hire labor, and you have certain deliverables by certain dates. Here, you had a little bit more freedom. I mean, you still had bills to pay, and there was still somebody watching, watching the dollars. You still had to produce something, but it wasn't quite as stringent, and you were given a little bit more freedom. And and that's one of the lessons I learned in my career um, that is indelible, that if you give folks the freedom, if you give somebody the freedom to innovate, to, to think on their own, to come up with ideas, it's unlimited. The, the capabilities are unlimited. They, they, they can come up with things you never even thought of. Right. Uh, the worst thing you could do is, is as a manager or as a leader, is to sort of cordon off your employees and say, just do this. I mean, you have to give them the freedom to create and to uh, invent themselves. No, and I think that's well. No, and I think that's well said. I, I, I do wonder though was was having this forward-looking view and always having you were basically being paid to innovate, right? I mean, you were being paid to come up with new ideas. Right. Was that stressful at times because you kept having to think of things that no one had thought of before? I mean, in some sense, that seems kind of kind of exhausting. It, it was difficult, but remember that even the research that you get to do, nobody pays you to do, you know, sit around and think of stuff. Uh, they expect to get something out of it, right? In terms of patents or papers or actual. Um, you know, uh, part of a product. So, so right. when you when you think about these things and when you innovate, the most important thing you can do is keep in mind always that sometime, sometime in the future, these things are going to have to translate into some translate into some real product that makes real money for for a company that has some business value that brings some value to customers or to to the business. Otherwise 
you're not going to get any support for it. Right. It will be a flash in the pan and it will go away. So there's got to be a business uh, component to this. And um, you also have to consider other things, which, you know, we can surely talk about, too. The, you, can, you can come across, the, we have come across it at work, Sigma, and that's those, the legal aspects, the, the, the network security and the legal, the COPPA and the HIPAA and all the other constraints around building or innovating a product that you have to keep in mind. So uh, there are a lot of aspects to it. I, I love doing that, though. For me, it's it's not a challenge. It's more of a natural thing. Yeah, no, I, I think I think for you, it's a natural thing. But I think a lot of for you, it's a natural thing. But I think a lot of people would actually find that very difficult just because I think I mean, we're all wired differently. Right. That's why I bring that up. Um, yeah. yep. So you're there. You were there for 20 years. Yep. What was I, I want to hear? What was your favorite your favorite project at IBM that you worked on? And then I want to hear what was your least favorite? Um, I don't, I don't have a least favorite at, at IBM. And I, I think that one of the better things that we worked on was, was a, a deployment of a cloud of a public cloud infrastructure, private and hybrid cloud infrastructure that supported hundreds of thousands of users concurrently running Linux and, and uh, Microsoft uh, Windows VM platform um, that, you know, folks could use around the world. We stood that thing up and, um, you know, had incredible success with it. But for a lot of reasons, IBM, for a lot of reasons, IBM decided to go a different way. Uh, if you follow them, you know that um, they tend to be a little bit schizophrenic sometimes. Um, and they, they tend to go more uh, almost as an investor rather than, um, you know, product developer. And it's caused them to shift away from their main focus, which used to be innovation and hardware and software. And, you know, they sold off all the hardware uh, pieces concentrated only on software. Uh, but that, that cloud system that we had, had stood up was very, very successful. But uh, in the end, uh, you know, the project was let off. Uh, there were a couple uh, let's say more disappointing offerings that that weren't taken up with the government and the military, and IBM abandoned that. They they, they tend to have a short attention span. Um, if you can't develop a if you can't develop a billion dollar idea in in six to nine months or something like that, then um, it's the kind of company where you're not likely to get you know much funding after that. Interesting. Yep. Interesting. What um. Obviously, you liked working there, though, because you were there for 20 years, right? So yep. I mean, clearly, clearly, you enjoyed a lot of the work that you did. I enjoyed it. How, yes. how did you, were you in the same organization for those 20 years, or did you move around throughout the company? No, I was actually in research for the full 20 years that I was there. Um, towards the mm, two-thirds of the way or so through my career, we, we sort of carved off a piece of research and called it services research. Um, we knew that uh, content was going to be king in the future. We knew that 20 years ago. We knew that the specializing in hardware and components and stuff was going to be less important than the, con important than the content that was delivered. And that's why you see all these systems today like Netflix and Hulu. and They're delivering content because content is king. People don't care what the servers are behind the scenes or you know the security model and stuff. What they're worried about is the content. So, um, you know, IBM did carve off that portion of research and called it services research, and I stayed there till I actually left. That's where I had the most fun dealing. You know, we actually spoke with lots of customers. We had a large cadre of customers, the big big companies. We also had like Los Alamos and and um, NSA and and other clients like that too, which which sort of made the whole thing interesting. Um, so it was never a dull moment there. And, and I worked with an incredible bunch of folks who were just, they were kind of like me. We, we just, we couldn't wait, just, we couldn't wait to have lunch almost just to, <clears throat> just to be able to talk about those things and bubble up the ideas. So I had a great time there. Yeah. And it sounds, I mean, it, it truly sounds like you enjoyed it and you learned a lot and, 
Um, I want I want to ask from a from an innovation perspective. How did you? Because I think a lot of people have this question. How do sure. you, how do you keep keep up with technology and what's next? Right? Like, do you have advice for people on if you want to always be learning about technology and learning about what's next from an innovation perspective? What are some ideas you have for people on how to do that? Like, how do you how do you not only stay current but even look forward? So, I. I wish I had that answer that it was easily uh, stated black and white, but I read, I read and I read so many things. I mean, I, not only some books, yes, I, some books, yes, I still use some paper books, uh, but I also read a lot on the web and, and, and I really trying to understand what folks are doing in business in all facets of the business. Um, and, and understand all angles, not just the one I'm working on, not yeah. just the software, right? I want to understand the business value. I want to understand the financing model, the tax model, the customer value proposition, um, you know, wh- how this thing is actually be deployed, what the pricing model is going to be, what the usage model is going to be, how folks are going to be able to leverage this, the thing. So I like to learn about all the aspects. And it's a continued journey. This, there's no end to learning. It, it just never stops. Um, and, you know, I've been studying lately. Um, I'm going to probably apply to law school soon. I, I wanted to go to law school just because I don't know enough about it. Yet. I don't know enough about it yet. And I've been studying the LSATs, uh, doing the LSAT prep, so I can t- take the LSATs and, and perhaps go to uh, law school. I just have this insatiable need to learn i just right. i just can't get enough yeah no I, I think i think i think the a lot of people i think that's going to help a lot of people right is their idea of just this constant this constant learning you know when you're done with school learning is not over right i mean it's just a continuous journey throughout life so no so so you left ibm after 20 years and that's yep. where we met because we met at, at cigna where i i currently work today and where you you worked for a number of years what what ultimately led you to leave IBM and and, and venture off to to Cigna where, where we met? Oh, frankly, with IBM, I had a good buyout proposition. You know, IBM periodically offers its folks once they re- reach twenty years to, um, you know, um, you know, take an early buyout out of the company, get a big uh, bonus check and and healthcare and stuff like that, and and you know they shuffle people through the the system. That's kind of how they operate. Um, so I had an opportunity to do that. A couple of my friends in my department were thinking about moving to somewhere else. Several of them left for Google, some, several of them left for Amazon. So I just felt it was the right time to do that and try something new. I I, I, I loved the, the healthcare space. I, I, I found it very fascinating and very interesting. And at the same time, it's like it's like the dark ages. Everything that's done in healthcare today is dark ages. The paper forms, the signature forms, the, the nonsense about filling all the 12 pages when you walk into a doctor's office. Right. Stuff, all that stuff is just all that stuff is just baloney. So I thought here's a chance that maybe I could, you know, sort of break off and try something in the healthcare space. So when the opportunity at Cigna, uh, you know, appeared, I thought, I'll try that. And, um, you know, at the time when I was interviewed with that, uh, that was Eric, who I missed dearly. Uh, Eric Consolazio said, um, I want you to bring some innovation into this company and bring something new, bring some some spark, some life. Let's create some new kinds of products in the healthcare space. And that was perfect. That was exactly what I wanted. I wanted to do something meaningful in the healthcare space. And I don't mean technology. I, right. I'm, I mean to customers and to help people. Um, as you get older, you realize that the, the, the healthcare becomes more and more important. It becomes more and more important, right? As you require more and more of it, use of it. And from, for somebody like me, to begin using it more and more and seeing the inefficiencies and the, and just incredible 
potential there to, to do something to help people understand it, navigate the healthcare system, to me, is just an incredible opportunity and something that I really, really um, wanted to to sort of tackle, to give it a try. Yeah, I think, um, and I, you know, I think, and, you know, we worked together for, for many years, I, and I think you definitely, I, th I think, had a, a great time working on healthcare innovation. But I think the other thing that I noticed about you from when we first met is you also really in, it really absolutely loved mentoring and developing like early career, um, early career employees. And yes. I don't know if you had a chance to do that at IBM in the research, in the research world you're in, world you're in, but it was just a, it, it just, it was such a natural fit for you at Cigna. Um, and I think you got my opinion. I think you got as much joy out of that as you did with some of the healthcare innovation work that you did. You got it. I mean, I had more fun. It was a blast. I, I you know, I, I get so much enjoyment out of seeing that spark, that that the the spark in the eyes of folks when you when you start to talk about that kind of innovation, and they start to get it. They really yeah, start yeah. to get it. That is great. You have to empower folks. At IBM, it was different. I mean, the people who came from IBM or to IBM for work, I, you know, I mentored some postdocs, but they were snots. I mean, frankly, they came out of school thinking that they knew everything. And and it wasn't a good experience at all. In Cigna, you, you didn't work with a lot of early career people at the research no. center at IBM, right? Well, was, early was, they were early career, but they were they were just out of school. I mean, they'd yeah. been in school for I mean, they'd yeah. been in school for you know 15, 20 years, and they haven't been in a job anywhere. So you know, they were early career, but they you know they didn't have that 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 open mind that you know they were sort of kind of set in their ways. And uh, we're at Cigna, uh, you know, you get folks just out of the undergrad, they're not sure what they want to do. They have, it's like clay, right? I mean, you, you get a chance to really, uh, you know, uh, interact with, with the folks. And that's one thing I love at Cigna. As I said before, empowering people, empowering the value of that is, is so understated that you have to... Um, you have to give folks the the ability and the 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 tools and the and the freedom to to develop and to do things, and they can come up with some absolutely phenomenal products. But you have to let them stumble. You have to bumble. You have to give them the guidance, the kind of guardrails around it. But you have to let them, in the end, sort of go off and try something and maybe stumble and fall down. I it. it um, it sounds a little funny, but it's true. I mean, these folks have incredibly uh, able minds. They, they, they've got all kinds of ideas. They want to do all kinds of things. At the same time, I have to keep the, you know, the, the sense of um, guardrails around them through, from legal, you know, and, and business aspects and stuff. But if you can do that and harness these folks, it's incredibly rewarding experience. I mean, the work I did with the interns there and the folks at UConn, the, the, the senior design products projects that I did at UConn, incredibly inspiring. I, I just love that stuff. I, I really do. So wh where did you, where did this passion to help young employees come from, right? And because, come from, right? And because, because you, you didn't do it really at IBM, right? But, but no. you found this love at, at, at Cigna what, what, do you know why? Like, where, where did it come no. from? As I said, my career is a bunch of butterfly wings. It's, it's, there's no, there was no mission right. to learn about that. One thing I did when I was at IBM is um, they have this program where you, you know, volunteer, you know, a certain number of hours and you can get grants and stuff, you know, these uh, grants for other nonprofit institutions. So I went to the local senior center and they had nothing. I mean, nobody even knew what a computer was. This was back in the mid-90s or something like that. So I went around the neighborhoods and collected, uh, call them junk computers and parts and pieces and stuff. And I put all these things together in a computer lab and put some software on it and put some software on it and started teaching seniors oh, wow. how to use computers. And all of a sudden, that took off. Within five or six years, they were running like, I don't know, 
maybe 10 or 12 classes every month That's cool. for, for seniors who were just dying to be able to talk to uh, their kids, their, their relatives, and be able to connect with them, share photographs with them. They had no clue how to do that. Right. So we ended up building a lab. We actually added on to the senior center, built a lab, and had a lab that was dedicated to computers. We bought some printers. We bought some real computers, some real software. Uh, we started programs in photograph, photographic editing, you know, how to use digital cameras, how to process your photos. And I think that to me was one of the things that, one of the things that um, did it for me that volunteering or helping people learn about this technology was really, yeah. uh, really rewarding for me. That was impactful. Uh, yeah. And, and for the fact that, you know, it's very difficult when you're young to start off in a company and to get, um, to get help. Uh, some people are unapproachable. It's difficult to know who to talk to. I wanted to change that model at Cigna. I wanted to be the one that folks would be free to go to. And, you know, they did, right? I don't care what I was doing. They could interrupt me anytime, bang the door down and say, you know, I got this thing I want to talk about right away. Let's do it. And I would always have time for them. Always. So, always. so let, let, let's talk about that because... I think this is something that I want people that are not early career to hear, but people that are more senior in their career. You know, you have a PhD, you have a PhD, you worked at IBM for 20 years, you have all these patents to your name. You're 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 kind of intimidating, especially for an early career person, right? So how did yeah. you make yourself how did you convince people that you were open to mentor them and you were open to work with them and that you weren't this really super intimidating? person that, that, that they didn't want to talk to that's a good question i like think what was what, your secret I, I don't know that i have a secret but i think what i did was i went down to the labs and uh, met people at lunchtime and met them at their breaks and in the hallways and i would stop and have conversations with them and i'd say hey come on down let's let's give it a uh, give it a whirl let's talk about it let's see what your ideas are and, and make let them know that there was somebody there who would listen no matter right. what. I mean, you have to reach out. If you sit behind a desk and you wait for people to come and ask for help, they probably won't. But if you reach out and but if you reach out and offer that and meet them in their uh, environment, whatever it is, um, and help inspire them there, I think that's really, really important. And, um, you know, I, I don't know, I you have to be helpful and not, not such a you know, I don't know, stuck up snob sitting behind the desk. You have to mingle with the folks and help them with their, uh, with their, uh, you know, career and right. help, help guide them in a way that's not intimidating at all. I, I don't know the, the answer for it. And perhaps I did not succeed when I was at Cigna, but I sure tried like hell. But you think, you think just listening to people's ideas was a big part of it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen to everyone. Everyone has to listen. That's a difficult thing that most, uh, well, a lot of managers I've heard uh, have tr uh, have trouble with. Uh, they always want to sort of interrupt somebody and say something. I think it's really important to give everybody a say and, and let them have their, their say, no matter what it is. Nothing's off the table. Nothing's crazy. Uh, nothing. No, we can't do that. I'll forget it. Forget it. But, let them have their, their you know, sort of moment in the, in the sun, if you will, because everybody has something to add. Everyone has something to add, no matter, you know, where they are in their career. No, no, I, I absolutely agree. So, so you, you, you've left Cigna, um, you know, I think over a year now, and you're, you're more um, back to doing other sort of consulting work and things like that. Yeah. Well, what I would like to know from you is, like, what is the because you're such a technology and innovation person, what is the one like or two things from a technology and innovation perspective that really excite you right now? Like, like what is something that you just can't wait, that you just can't wait to, to see more or read more about or learn more about? So, um, yeah, I, I would love to get back into it in some fashion um, in any company, 
if companies are really going to do innovation. I'm not sure how much companies are actually doing in the innovation field. But look, this is an incredible, we have like a, uh, this few moments in history, like, like the one that's, that's taken place here because of the pandemic. Um, we have an opportunity here to help, uh, you know, change the way we work, play, live, and do business uh, in this world. Um, by leveraging technology, we can help change those those things that are happening now, those challenges, the education mm -hmm. system, right? So, you know, folks don't know what to do. They don't have to go to school. Do They don't have to go to school. They can't do in-person classes and they're afraid of infections. And they've tried to do little things like these pods or learning pods and stuff like that. But this is a chance for us to change um, really do a 180 and change completely the education system and how education is delivered now, how healthcare services are delivered, how mental health care services are delivered. It's something that concerns me during the pandemic because there's a lot of folks who are hurting before this pandemic. They're always, they're hurting still. They're right. hurting even more. What can we do? What it, where is, where is the empathy? What, how can we reach out to these folks and really help them. It's it's an incredible opportunity for innovation in, in you know leveraging technology. By the way, not all technology, not, not all innovation is technology per se. It's technology per se, but technology can be a, a, a an enabler in that yeah, technology. Absolutely. But how can we help folks? How can we help the education system navigate the the, the waters? These are uncharted waters for for folks. At least in the IT space, we understand the technology, but how can we enable that for the for these teachers who are working very, very hard under tremendously difficult conditions to try and do what's best for the children and the parents who have to, you know, have to go to work. So, you know, they want to send the kids to school because that, right. that's where the kids are kind of the babysitting, you know, during the day and, and that kind of thing. How can we help that? How can we change the model? How can we change things so that, um, because I don't think that the pandemic, by the way, is, is going to, by the way, is, is going to go away entirely. We may come up with a vaccine or two. It may be a cocktail. Um, who, who knows what, but I don't think we're done with this and we may not be done with it for a while. I know that's maybe distressing for some folks, but it could be a while. So here's an opportunity to really change the game, how we deliver educational services and, and healthcare services and other services to folks, it's, it's, it's a time for change and it, it, it's wide open. I don't know the answers to it. I don't know all the, yeah. the, the technology that we would employ, but it's an incredible opportunity um, to actually you know, help people. Yeah, no, I, I think that's well said. And I think just an example that you gave is we've had uh, telemedicine for years, right? And a lot of it, it really never caught on. People really didn't like talking to a doctor like we're talking, talking to a doctor like we're talking right now. Right. And then and then COVID came and now people are like, I don't want to go to a, a physician's office. I'll talk to a doctor like this, right? So it's interesting how, you know, how the, how the pandemic has shifted how we consume healthcare, how we work now, right? How many people are working from home now where they never thought you could work from home. So it is really interesting to see how uh, how it's changing everything. So the other dynamic, too, you think about the people who who rode horses back at the turn of the century when the automobile came along. They didn't want to change either. They wanted to keep their horses. But the rest of the world, you know, took their cars and went on, you know, uh, with life. Uh, we're at this one of those moments, too, now where, you know, things can change significantly um, and we're waiting to seize this opportunity to be able to, um, you know, to help change the world. I mean, maybe, maybe the traditional universities, the universities um, are going to move into malls, shopping malls. I mean, you know, all the people are moving from the cities to the suburbs now. Uh, real estate is selling like crazy in the suburbs, by the way, because folks are trying to move out of the cities. They, they don't feel comfortable now in those crowded sort of congested areas. So, what happens? They leave all that real estate right. on 
uh, right, all those big buildings, uh, you know, in the center of New York City are not generating any tax revenue. They're, they're, nobody's buying the services or the food around the area and stuff. So what do you do with, with all those buildings? And what about all the people who are moving away from those cities to the, to the countryside or more rural areas? How do they work? You know, what kinds of jobs can they do? How can we re-engineer that? There's just so many things that are, are open for, uh, you know, for innovation right now. No, I agree. I agree. So, so I want to first say, just say, so I want to first say, just say thank you again for joining us tonight. Sure. A fantastic discussion. I think a lot of people got some really great advice from you. And I always close the same question with every guest is what is the one thing you would share with my audience that's helped you reach your full potential? So what has helped you be so successful being an entrepreneur, working for IBM, working for Cigna? What is that one thing that you would share with everyone? Yeah, I, I don't necessarily judge the success personally. I look at my success as the impact that I've had on others. So I measure my success by how many folks I've helped along in their career, how many folks I've helped get promoted, how many folks I've helped start companies, how many folks I've you know helped along their journey, either emotionally or or you know business-wise. Um, that's how I measure my success. My success is not my personal success at all. I just never really thought, just never really thought of it that way. I mean, uh, it's a change, right? So. You know, the earlier your career, I think you you look to uh, move yourself up the ladder, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And as uh, soon as you get to the point where, you know, you realize the folly in that, that you're you're going to be more happy, I think, doing what you like and liking what you do, and helping other folks along their journey. That's the reward. That's the most satisfying. That's why Jimmy Carter still builds houses. Uh, you know, at, at 92 or whatever that he is, because he gets incredible amount of, you know, um, joy out of, out of doing for others. And I think that we all need to take a lesson from that, that our full potential is not measured by our own success and our own salary, our own band level, but in how we impact others and what we can do for others to make their journey, make their journey, you know, uh, easier. That was uh, very well said, and I appreciate the uh, I appreciate the advice, Steve. So thank you so much, and, and just for everyone listening, uh, if if you watch this live, uh, thank thank you for for tuning in. And then we're also going to share this on uh, we'll we'll have the video up on YouTube, Steve. So if people missed it, they can join us there. And then okay. we also share the audio on every major podcast platform, uh, including Apple and Google and Spotify and Anchor, etc. So. Steve Mastriani, thank you so much, sir. I appreciate all you've done uh, for so many people that I know and that, uh, that, that we're close to. And uh, stay healthy and be well. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Full Potential Podcast. If you'd like to hear more interviews, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify. You can also connect with us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And don't forget to check out our website, fullpotentialmovement.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing and be well.